Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 68 of the North Meets South web podcast. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Episode 68. Thanks so much for joining us. We are going to jump right into it. In fact, you didn't even hear any intro music today because Michael decided to go along with the bandwagon and go the whole Adam Wathen route and just cut it all out. So, I mean, I guess that's what we're doing now. At least we're going to try it. Yeah. So, we're going to try it. Yeah, if you missed the intro, I cut music. it down. I cut it down last episode. It yeah. it was it was probably about half the length of what it used You're to be. You're so, so trendy. You're so trendy. Ooh, I like to keep on trend. I like to follow. I like to ride on those coattails as much as possible. Yeah. So, Adam, it was funny on Adam's uh, episode with Caleb. It was like he cut out the intro except for like a da da da. I was like, okay, we're in it. Yeah. Like it was so funny. It was just like a That's tiny it. little piece. So. Yeah, it was anyway. good. And also thanks to show sponsor. Fathom Analytics. We will speak more about them later in the show. Yes. By the way, they're awesome and we love them and you should definitely check them out. If you've ever had that problem where like you try and get into Google Analytics and you can't find out at all what you're looking for within like 10 minutes and you just abandon, like I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I can't figure out what I'm trying to find. Fathom Analytics is a solution to that problem. So we're going to talk about them later, but they're awesome and they're very reasonably priced and they're super privacy focused, which I think is amazing. Let me tell you this quick quote, by the way. Last thing, I promise. Okay. And I think we may have said it last time. Maybe not. But they said, basically, um, users will usually or most often trade privacy privacy for convenience. And so the ethical thing to do is to make uh, privacy the most convenient option, right? So Mm -hmm. we don't want to be contributing to the sharing of people's data all over the place. Uh, we need to be responsible with that. And so uh, by using something like Fathom Analytics rather than Google Analytics, you are helping to contribute to the privacy of your users. And it also makes it great because you don't have to do that stupid cookie warning at the bottom, which we all hate. Oh my gosh, do we yeah. hate that? Oh, seriously. Okay, here's I, the other thing I hate about that. And you say it's a cookie thing at the at warning at the bottom, but it's not. If you open anything on your website, it's a full page of cookie warning. Yeah, and here's the other thing that's really annoying is that... Any so the, it's ruined the alert for forever. Like you can't anytime you see that at the bottom or at the top of anybody's site, you they just don't ignore it. it. Correct. Like so, that pattern is to- totally dead. You can't do that anymore for anything other than the cookie. Everybody just clicks close, which really mm-hmm. sucks. Like that was a huge. Yeah. That's I don't know. That's terrible. It's <sighs> a thing. You can't trust anyone with privacy anymore. Recently, it was brought to light that Apple, who is yeah, what you would consider that. to be a truly privacy-focused company, has opted not to encrypt users' iCloud backups uh, in order to aid the FBI. So whilst they've been making big public stances about, you know, user privacy and privacy of individuals and things like that, like we don't have the ability to unlock your iPhone and we can't reverse the encryption, all that kind of stuff. If you back your stuff up there, then they have access to it, um, was the gist that I got from it. Which, the, yeah, I, I read the same article and yes, it is that is true. Oh man, I'm like sort of conflicted about this. Um, not, what, I don't know. I mean, what's the alternative using Google? I don't think so. No, I know, I know. I'm not conflicted <laughs> about using Apple over Google. Like, I still think Apple is more privacy focused than Google ever will be. Um, but but they've been sitting on this for like three years. Yeah, I think the thing I'm conflicted about is the fact that I would love for everything to be encrypted for me. Like, I don't. I, I would. I love the feeling of privacy and security, knowing that like. Nobody can get to my stuff, not even Apple employees. That would be great. That's mm-hmm. a great feeling. Mm-hmm. However, I also 
don't like the idea of people being able to not be held accountable if they're doing things to harm other people, like specifically harming like children. I don't know. It feels really icky to mm-hmm. me. Like how do we, what's, how do we like catch those people? Right. And if there's like, yeah. if everything's encrypted and we can't catch, I don't know. It's such a difficult conversation because I yeah. want those people to be caught and it's like, okay, but I have to trade some of my privacy in order to be able to do that. Is it worth it? And it's like, ugh, I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I, I mean, think it these is. people have been but doing these things hard. for like, you know, 30, 40, 50 years and they're only just getting caught now for things they did 50 years ago. So, I mean, they've been getting it away, getting away with it for this long. I don't think encryption or not encryption, you know, and like the bad guys, you know, the, the in air quotes, bad guys that are like plotting terrorist attacks and things like that. They're probably not using iPhones. So, you know, it's a, I don't know. It's, it's a false dichotomy. I think is dichotomy the right word. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I think you're correct. A false dichotomy would be like it's one or the other, and what you're saying is mm-hmm. that's not necessarily true. Yeah. So what what I do like is the the latest version of um, Firefox just on privacy, and and Firefox Mozilla is a, a fairly privacy focused organization. The most recent version of Firefox, when you open Facebook, it prompts you to install the the Facebook container or something like that, and it will actually keep Facebook from interacting outside Ooh, of that that's tab. super cool so you, you can't be tracked by the facebook tracking pixel and all that kind of stuff across the internet because it isolates all of that activity i mean you would have to only use firefox and the facebook container as soon as you start opening up your iphone and things like that it kind of changes things a little bit but um you know it's a step in the right direction as soon as i saw that come up i hit the uh, add extension button yeah i haven't used firefox in quite a while but i know it's making a huge resurgence a big comeback yeah it used to be yeah Chrome i've been using it for a yeah, I've been using it for about a year. I try and avoid using Chrome and Google things as much as possible. I wish, I mean, I wish I just could not, didn't have to use a computer to be honest, but here we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's that saying? Like you either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. Like that's what's mm-hmm. happened with Chrome, right? They they were like the yeah. big hero on the stage. And now it's like they've been around yeah. long enough. Everybody's like, wait a second. And like worst. not even just Chrome specifically, but the, the whole of like Google, the things that are coming yeah, out from right. former employees and, and senior vice presidents and executives and things like that, talking about the the culture and how things have changed over time. And and there was an article I saw recently that was from a, like it was a compliance officer or something, like a senior compliance person. And, and they had to like get out of there because the, the they'd been there for so long and it got to the point where they were raising concerns around compliance and around um you know ethics and things like that and google just like started shutting them out and it everything became about just making money and and they were like in china obviously there's a the the big thing is their their great firewall and and all of that kind of stuff and how they're spying on their citizens and whatever else and and google initially had said oh you know we're not going to be part of that we're going to pull out and then when the culture of the company started to shift and i'll have to see if i can find this article again and link it up in the show notes when the culture of the of the company had started to shift such that, you know, the motto was not really don't be evil anymore. Um, you know, they started ignoring these people that were that were raising concerns and they started launching projects and things like that to, you know, to have a China specific version of Google so that, you know, it could do the things and they could block the the things that they didn't, you know, that went against the narrative of the the government and things like that. So yeah, it's um it it's a shame that there's organizations out there. i mean they, they've got to make money sure but there's there's good ways and bad ways of, of making money and like facebook's a good example as well where zuckerberg's like you know we want to be 
legislated against and we want there to be rules about how about you just find a of f yeah what is it ethicity <laughs> you know just find it with yourself to just like do the right thing it's and yeah, like yeah be ethical yeah but, you know it's hard now because they've got shareholders and they've got you know exactly. all of the that's, all yeah. of the money that's invested in it they don't they really have the the power i guess to, to do the right thing because they're driven by the people that are writing the checks at the end of the day so it's kind of a gross situation they found themselves in and i, I think it's all lip service to say you know we want to be regular and all that kind of stuff because uh, yeah if you really want to do it you just do it not because you were made to do it yeah it's like for him though like i he honestly probably does mean it like he's got all the money he needs like does he seriously need more money well have you seen that guy he's a human anymore <laughs> i'm sure he got swapped out for an android like five years ago and <laughs> right. he's just living on an island where yeah but like what more does he need right like i'm mm. sure like would he like to do the ethical thing yeah but like at the end of the day i don't know this is like ah man it's tough these are difficult conversations because this is like the allure of capitalism yeah. versus like the reality of capitalism because it's like when everything is just about the bottom dollar like you get to end up do some really gross stuff like you mm -hmm. have to have values behind what you're doing too or else literally if the dollar is the only thing driving it you do end up losing all morals and abandoning yeah. you know everything yeah. for the cost of the almighty dollar so yeah yeah i don't know okay anyway that's not really what this podcast is about uh although i will say that uh 20 time is all about they do you know philosophy stuff so we're allowed to do a little bit i suppose right moving on then um i wanted to talk a little bit about your redis stuff because it sounds like you've got a possible solution but before we do that i would like to do a intro of what I believe the problem was before you kind of talk about the solution. So it seems like what you guys were dealing with is you were trying to send emails out to people who were affected by an outage. And so you'd send this large list of uh, email addresses that you wanted to send emails to, you'd queue them all. And what was happening is it seemed like your queue workers were trying to run too fast almost, and you would end up with people who would end up getting multiple emails. It was like Redis wasn't locking mm. or something, the queue job, and so you'd end up queuing it twice. Yeah. And so you were trying to find some crazy solution around, can we mark it as locked or can it look to see if there's a previous one that was sent or like all these different mm -hmm. crazy things that you were trying to do to try and get this to stop sending multiple emails at the same time so what was your solution what ended up helping fix it so we did figure it out uh it wasn't that it was sending too fast it was not that it wasn't locking it didn't actually have anything to do with redis at all in the end and it didn't have anything to do with the database um what it ended up being so we're using SendGrid to send their emails and although ah. they don't publish any rate limits for their APIs, and although their documentation says that effectively you can send as many emails as you want through them and they'll take it, uh, it does seem that somewhere around about 2,000 emails over the space of some time window, uh, it would start to back off your API requests. So, you know, it would take like half a second to send an email, half a second to take an email, and then eventually it was like six seconds, eight seconds, 18 seconds, and then it would just fluctuate around. Oh my gosh. And so... I'm wondering if, you know what, Michael, I'm wondering is if it actually isn't in their documentation because it isn't them. It might be some DDoS protection. Possibly. Like maybe they're using Cloudflare mm. or something on that DNS and Cloudflare says, wait, this has been way too yeah. heavy for too long. Yeah. Like this is actually bad traffic. Possibly. I mean... It does actually document that they send back rate limit headers. So, you know, they get the X rate limited, X rate limited remaining and all that kind of stuff. But on that particular sure. endpoint, they don't send those headers. So we didn't even know that we were being rate limited 
And so we thought, you know, yeah, that's maybe we're sending too many emails. Maybe it's having some effect and there was nothing documented. So we looked, they, they did document the ability to send email to up to a thousand recipients in one API request. The downside to that was that it would put each of those thousand email addresses into the same two field, which meant that a thousand people yeah, would no see 999 other people's email addresses, which you can't do. Um, you know, could you just do a BCC? Can you do it as a it's BCC? Still need, you still have to send it to someone, right? So we we had to have an email address ah. in addition to the BCC. So um, gotcha. we, it didn't really work out that way. So when we couldn't figure it out based on all the information that we had available to us, I ended up logging a ticket with SendGrid and they're like, yeah, you've hit like a progressive back off. Um, you should, you know, send a thousand at a time. And I said, well, your API docs say that if we do it like that, then all of those people will see each other as recipients, which as an internet provider, we absolutely cannot have. So they said, no, no, no. That's right. They said, if you construct the payload in this particular way, then it will actually send a thousand individual emails. And I'm sitting there going, well, I wish that was documented. (laughs) So instead of, instead of sending an array of twos, so you'd have two colon array and then a thousand email addresses. You send a array to array one email address and then you send a thousand of those. So a thousand objects yeah. with just the two in them. Um, and that took probably about half a day to get work because you think it's fairly simple, but Laravel doesn't really do that for you. And the send grid driver that we were using, the package that we were using doesn't really do that for you. It just constructs it in such a way um, that you just get a thousand twos in in that that one array, which obviously we couldn't work with. So we had to go and extend that package because yeah. it, it then became kind of specific to our needs because we had to do we had to craft the message in a specific way that we could actually then pass personalizations through. So in each email right. that yeah, we send out, it's question. got like the the individual username in there. It's like this username is affected because you could have. If you're a technical contact, for example, you could have your email address listed against five or 10 or 20 different customers. So if you get an email that says a disruption has happened, well, then you've got no point of reference as to which service that is. So we have to put the username in there. And then we had to put some things in there to work around like um, which ones do and which ones don't uh, get sent. And then we still had to do the checks to make sure that we didn't send any duplicates. So like doing everything can, everything we can to make sure we don't send duplicates. Um, and then the other thing that we got stuck on was like tracking of those emails. So click tracking and opens and delivers and that we get webhooks back from SendGrid, but without, um, you know, without an individual reference, because we, when we send a thousand at a time, we no longer get the message ID from, from SwiftMailer. So from the actual, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. SwiftMailer. Mm-hmm. So, um, what we ended up having to do was then figure... And then we've had issues with their headers in the past where they don't actually get passed through like they're supposed to, like for a message ID that we can create. So we had to work it around that. Right. So we did a, a whole bunch of customizations just to get this to work. And I'm like, if we ever change from SendGrid, we're in for a whole... Like we're going to have to redo all of this. So we're just going to have to use SendGrid forever now. So so do you send a custom message ID? Is that how you got around it? Because even with, I guess that's what you probably what you'd have to do, right? So you probably have to send a custom message ID with each message. Yeah. And that was somehow in that payload yeah, so you're we, constructing that had the array correct. of two so and no, no longer probably had just yeah. a two. Probably also yeah, so I would have passed headers in there and just passed like an X 
uh, like there's a unique ID or a custom ID or a custom field or something that you could pass in there. And, and that worked. So, you know, once we figured out which, cause we had used it in the past where you could specify a thing, but it didn't come through in subsequent posts. So, um, Ah, yeah, we did. We did get it working. So you have again. to use like what they sub, what they prescribe. Yeah, so they they say they, you can send a kind of custom message ID if you X Correct, custom yeah. ID. So there. you know okay. we got there in the end. Um, it took a couple of days to get done, but now we can sort of easily reach thousands of customers without having to worry too much about um, how long it's going to take. Because you know if you have a fifteen minute disruption that affects thousands of people, you don't want them to be getting the Disruption has started email sort of two hours after the disruption ends. So, yeah, well, it sounds like you can get like 2 million out, right? Because if you can do a thousand recipients per and you can do 2,000 before you hit like mm. a rate limit, that's 2 million before you yeah. get rate limited. So, that's yeah, pretty nice. So, it was good to, to nut that out. It was just because there was so much stuff going on that week. And because the days was just getting longer and longer, like I was um, getting to work at eight in the morning. I was working until four in the afternoon. I was going home. I was spending a couple of hours with the family. And then I was like from when Eli went to bed basically until 11, 12 at night for six days in a row. Like I wasn't working, working, but I was watching my phone. I was watching alerts. I was interact. you know, I was doing customer support, which is like not in my wheelhouse, right? There's not, you know, as a developer, I don't do customer support, but because of the nature of the issue, it was right. kind of an all hands on deck thing. And it was, you know, liaising with yeah, the network sure. engineers that were working on the problem. It was liaising with customers. It was like logging service disruptions. And then this this issue only presented itself at scale, right? It only presented itself in production with production APIs. It's hard to kind of test sending a thousand emails because you can like fake sending a thousand emails and saying, you know, assert sent, you know, mail fake, assert sent, a thousand times but that's not the reality of it it's did a thousand actually hit the end and you don't really want to send a thousand right. emails like how are you fabricating a thousand emails um and you don't want to send a thousand faker emails to sandgrid because that can then affect your deliverability because you're sending um you know a thousand emails yeah. that are going to Garbage bounce emails, like right? they are going to bounce so that has impact as well so um it was one of those things that we had to we had to use the the real examples of the issue happening to try and work backwards to to figure out what was happening. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm glad it got there. It took us a few days, myself and and one of my other uh, programmers, to to sort of nut out first of all what was happening. Then I built like a, a first pass implementation. The other developer went through and built the the tracking, like you know, updated all the tracking stuff because he built that initially to make sure that all worked. And then, um. You know, we had a disruption that was like 600 users that we had to like. We held off sending the the it was an it was a scheduled one, so at least we had a bit of time to test that code as best we could. I tested it like over and over and over and over again because I didn't want to find myself in a situation where we sent a thousand addresses in a two field and then the other developer tested a bunch of times to make sure it was working. So, and then when this disruption came up that had something like 800 affected in it, it was like right let's cross our fingers and toes and hope for the best when we send this out. And and luckily like it went out and the, the job ran in like five seconds, got everything out in one, in one request. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was, it was yeah, a big thing. Right? That's and like, sweet. it's good that we found it now that we had this issue that like, you know, it's fixed for the future now. Um, so that, you know, when we're a much bigger provider, 
um, you know, when we're 10 times the size we are now or 15 or 20 times, this, like we know that is if there's a significant impacting issue that we can get in touch with our customers, um, you know, really quickly, really easily. Um, and, you know, you know, timely delivery of those messages. So that was handy. That's really nice. Yeah. The, um, it's basically you bypass the API totally. So like any of the HTTP delay that mm-hmm. you'd have for sending however many thousand emails, it's completely gone now. Yeah. So you can, you know, blitz a thousand at a time. Yeah. That's really sweet. That's a pretty, that's a pretty neat feature. Um, I'm wondering if there's any others providers that actually provide that feature. Cause if not, I mean, that's yeah. pretty cool. Cause pretty much you're pushing them onto their queue as fast yeah. as you possibly yeah. can. Right. It's as quick as they can yeah. send them then. Uh, cause there's no HTTP delay. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, there is some interesting questions and problems around that, such as how do you track sends yeah. and delivers and those sorts of things. So that's interesting yeah. that you guys got that figured out and probably worth a blog yeah. post, honestly, yeah, so. cause you'll for sure have to come yeah. back to that and be like, okay, how did we do that again? What Even just a blog post to document, um, like this is how you need to craft that payload so that, correct. you know, you can get that out to people and and like it is great now because if we had to send an email to like twenty thousand people, well, before that was twenty thousand HTTP requests that would have taken who knows how long. Whereas now it's it's exactly. twenty API requests, and they just go bang 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 yeah, bang. Yeah, right, which done. is blazing yeah. fast. Yeah. And we the unfortunate yeah. thing is because we kind of need to know in real time if there's a duplicate. Um, we we can't do it like every thousand because if they overlap, then you might still do it. So we we literally have to get the entire list of affected users we have to iterate Uh, over each one we have to hit the database for each Mm. one to say has this one received this email and then we add them to a collection and then at the end of that thousand we then send the email and then we go through the next thousand um it's it's tricky like because you because you can run into the um the old race condition where you don't think it's been sent but maybe it has been sent so to mitigate the the impact of that, we we essentially check every and that slows the process down, but nowhere near as much as um as you know what was happening before, and certainly mitigating the impact of customers receiving the same email multiple times. I don't know if it's happened since we haven't been able like we haven't been able to tell that it's happened based on our logging from our side. We haven't had any reports of it, so you know, knock on wood, it's all working as we expect it to be. Yeah, yeah, fingers crossed, right? Wow, dude, that is that is uh, a wild one. Yeah. I'm glad you guys got that oh, figured so out. Am I. <laughs> hey, um, so I've talked about this previously. I, I have a couple other things I wanted to talk about, but I'm I'm curious to talk about this one real quick. Is it Fathom Analytics? Um, and that it is not Fathom Analytics, but we could talk about that real quick. You want to <laughs> I talk think about we Fathom should. I think we should. We could. Okay, let me pull them up real quick. Okay, yeah, so let's talk about Fathom. So Fathom is simple analytics for bloggers and businesses. So their whole thing is stop scrolling through pages of reports and collecting gobs of personal data about your visitors, both of which you probably don't need. Instead, Fathom is a simple and private website analytics platform that lets you focus on what's important, your business. So it's one screen, in real time that collects the pieces of information that you want to know about. You don't have to have cookie notices on your pages. They don't collect any personal or invasive data about your users. They don't use cookies at all, meaning you don't have to show that pesky notice to users or uh, any of that garbage. Also, they're GDPR compliant. 
Um, it grows without slowing you down because they have auto-scaling servers, so they'll never slow down your site. Uh, their tracker file is served with a really, really fast, super fast CDN, and they have endpoints located around the world to ensure that you have face, uh, fast uh, page loads on that. And then they're also instantly ready for huge spikes. They're, they're built to handle billions of page views, which I doubt any of us are really at. If you are, uh, you're probably not listening to this podcast. <laughs> so they've been featured all over the place. Fast Company, GitHub, Product Hunt, Hacker News uh, for having a really simple and easy to use alternative to Google Analytics. It's pretty much plug and play. Just put it in the place and you're all set to go. It has been used by tons of Laravel people. Uh, Jack McDade, Miguel. Um, oh man, isn't that sad? I don't, I don't even know how to say his last name. I know who he yeah. is. Hi, Miguel. Miguel. Um, that's it. That's the guy. Uh, and then Justin Jackson as well, who is, of course, the co-founder of Transistor. We're a big fan of Justin around here. So yeah, this is an incredible tool. You should definitely check it out. Use fathom.com. And if you use our offer code our offer code at uh, usefathom.com slash north, your first month's bill will only be five bucks. You should definitely check that out. Yeah. Thanks, Fathom. I, you guys yeah. rock. I, last week or last episode, I said I think they use Laravel and I think they use Vapor. I confirm that. They do use Laravel and they do use Vapor. Paul Jarvis and, boom, and boom. Uh, more specifically, Jack Ellis, who are the co-founders and operators of Fathom. Um, Jack actually has a course coming out on using Laravel Vapor. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, and like we took a stab at talking about privacy earlier on. Jack and Paul actually host a weekly podcast called Above Board, which is all about discussing privacy and business in the digital age. So, um, yeah, they're sponsoring the show. So let's uh, send some ear holes their way. We'll provide links to their podcast in the show notes as well. No way. This is so funny. So I'm looking at all their stuff and like I've I've followed these guys for, for <laughs> I didn't realize I was following the the makers. Uh, so Paul is the um, author of Company of One, which is on my list of books to read. Uh, and then Jack Ellis is like one of these guys who, in recent a recent uh, tweet, they were like, "Who should we be following that we might not be we might not know about in the Laravel community?" And they're like, Jack Ellis. So I'm following Jack Ellis as well. Hey guys, I know who you are. I know who you are. <laughs> It's so funny that I didn't realize those are the same people that I was talking to about this yeah. though. Awesome. Very cool. Okay. Yes. Moving on. So uh, what I wanted to talk about was logging. Mm -hmm. How much logging do you do? How much is necessary? Is there any such thing as too much logging? Where do you consume your logging? Do you aggregate it and aggregate it in a certain spot? Do you do anything with them? Blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, et cetera, et cetera. So, let me start with the let me start with the very first question. Do you do much logging in your applications outside of exception logging? Uh, we do some, but not as much as I'd like. Okay, interesting. So, do you have any people on your team that really like logging? No, and others that don't. Or do you guys pretty much like you don't have you don't really see many log statements in, in your code? We don't have many. Um, log statements in our code. There are a couple of places where we're fairly log heavy. Um, you won't guess where. Like, give me a for instance. Yeah. So in our emails. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, actually, we do have a, a communication log for emails and for SMSs that we send. Um, but that's that's in the database. That's not like we're not logging that they're being sent or anything like that. 
Um, the, right. Okay. So that's an important distinction I want to mm-hmm. make here. So logging in the database is not yeah. logging that I'm talking yeah. about. I'm talking about just like text yeah. log. Yeah. So into the Laravel login things. Because like logging that. in the database, you can aggregate and go mm-hmm. do, you know, you can grab metrics yeah. and numbers on yeah. it really easily. So, so yeah. there are there are two key places where we do quite a bit of logging. One of them is in our suspension system. So we track when we check to see like does a user, does a customer need to be suspended? And we track sending requests to our radius servers to say like, go suspend this user. And then we track the, the, the response payload for that and things like that. So we, we go here, this user needs to be, this customer needs to be suspended, find all of their services, go and suspend all of their services. And if they're online, we need to kick them offline and then suspend them or suspend them and kick them offline, right? Um, so in, that's one place that we do it. The other place that we do it is in our uh, data accounting system, which is fairly heavy as well, where we say, you know, we're checking this user. Are they above a usage threshold? Are they over their, um, their quota allocation for the, for the billing period? Are they, um, do they need to be shaped? So if they've gone over, we, we shape their speed down rather than billing excess data. Um, and, and similar to the suspension stuff, like when we send a request for, um, shaping and things like that, they go out to the, um, the radio servers. And so we log all of that. Um, currently we're just using specific channels. So there's a log channel. That's just a text file that we've set up for, um, the suspension system. And there's a log channel that we've set up for shaping and they're just text files. Um, and, and so you literally say, you'll say like logger and you'll specify the channel that you're sending that stuff to. Interesting. Okay. Um, now for legacy reasons, that just goes to text files that are rotated out. Um, I think we've got it configured for 14 days. So we've got a 14 daily log. So that, you know, sometimes people don't, they, they don't notice straight away that if there's an issue or they don't call up, you know, why was I suspended or why was I not unsuspended and things like that for a few days. Um, you know, there might be a way when that happens. So um, 14 days for that. For legacy reasons, that's a text file. In our new server infrastructure, all of our servers are provisioned with access to um, syslog, uh, to our syslog and an elk stack so that, you know, where, we, where you might use something like paper trail, for example, which is a, a hosted version. Sure. We've got that internally because we have all of our, certifi- our ISO certifications and things. We can't offload that kind of stuff. Um, so we we do have access to Elk stacks. We haven't configured any of our applications to use them yet, but it's something that we would like to do in the first quarter of this year is to, number one, configure our apps to use those stacks because Laravel makes it, really, really simple to do so. You know, just update some things, say there's there's the syslog server over there, go right to it. Um, And then we need to look at what we're logging and and how. Um, So, you know, access to accounts, when people are extending invoices, why they're extending them, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that kind of stuff. um, Well, actually, I guess that kind of stuff we wouldn't log in in the in you know through a log channel we would probably put that in a database somewhere so that we can recall it much more easily um but syslog we should probably be using for internal things for for developers to go and recall like why did this happen what was the what was the execution path from get from the from visiting this page to some action having been carried out um all of our legacy stuff doesn't really do it um one of our one of our systems that runs scheduled like cron tasks um it writes to a, a file in slash temp, which is terrible because if if that server ever goes down, the temp file is gone. Yeah. Number one. It's gone. Uh, yep. Number two, it doesn't really matter anyway because it logs that that 
cron had started running and that cron had finished running and nothing in between. So, um, yeah, it's a pointless log file anyway, unless you want to know whether or not the, sure, whether right. or not the system ran at all. Yeah. So, okay, here's my next question. So you have those specific ones where you have like the certifications or not certifications, the uh, suspensions yeah, or whatever, yeah. right? So you don't, you guys are not the ones going to look at those, but you have other people who are, maybe if somebody calls in and says, Hey, I was suspended, what's going on with this? And somebody can go in and, and say, Oh, let me take a look. And then they look at the log file and say, this is customer ID number one, yeah. two, five. And no, no, we, we would, no, no, we, no, we would do that. So someone would call up, they would say, you know, what, what happened? Then our contact center staff would reach out to us and they would be like, Hey, what happened to this? And then we would go and look at those logs. So they're, they're for internal okay. logs. They're for us. Like, we know that something should have happened in the application and and we log that it's happened. Like we add a note to the account saying like this service was suspended, um, but sometimes it doesn't get suspended. And so we need we then go and look and trace the logs to see what happened, what the response from the radius server was that, you know, ultimately resulted in that not being carried out. Gotcha. Okay. So it is a developer tool. Sure, it's, not, it's not, it's not. But in that staff. case, yeah, in that case, when you're logging that piece of information, it actually seems like you're probably logging both the successes and the failures in that case. So if the Radius server responds yeah. back, yep, we suspended them. Or if the Radius server responds back, nope, we actually yeah. didn't suspend We just them. logged the response code, um, which annoyingly is just an integer. So then we have to go and look up in... Uh, we should probably translate it, to be honest, because they're just constants in PHP. Um, and so we'd get like, and, a, in that, and then in that case, essentially, you could really probably just only really log the ones that are in error. Like if they're successful, mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose you could, you could, error, you could log, you just log everything, but success, yeah, but if they were, cause we don't, yeah, we don't sure. parse the response. We just take whatever the response was from radius and throw yeah, it into the, it you know, into log. the context and just say like, this was the response. Yeah. 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 Yep. That makes sense. Okay. Um, my argument that I'm trying to come up with here is that, um, in some instances and in really in a lot of instances, a couple of the, well, not a couple, one of the developers on my team likes to log and that's great. Mm -hmm. Totally fine. Um, but it's gotten to some spots where I have been like, "Mm, I'm not positive that I like how the code looks when we have all those log statements in there. And then I was like, okay, let's, let's really consider if these logs are necessary or not. So I started looking at what the logs were doing and a lot of them were just logging successful things that were happening. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, we go, we're going to go ahead and we're going to parse this string and we're going to try and get a claim number out of this string. Okay. Yep. Successful log info claim number was this. Yeah. Great. Okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to take that claim number and we are going to split that into its two pieces and we're going to remove any leading zeros. Okay, go ahead and do that. All right, success. We removed the leading zeros. Here's what that looks like now. Okay, excellent. All right, go ahead and take that and we're going to name a file that dot email or underscore email dot PDF and we're going to store it. Yep, okay, success. We stored that email. Here's where it is. Excellent. Okay, and so you have all these log statements that are recording successful pieces of information. And to me... I'm not positive when that is ever going to be useful mm-hmm. ever. Like, I don't know when I'm going to go in and go find the pieces of data that I can look through and say, Oh, yep. Success, success, you know, success, success. Mm-hmm. That looks good. Um, the, there are times I could say maybe like if it got through and it named it found the claim number and then we went to trim, trim the leading zeros and oops, it didn't trim the leading zeros. Right. There are, so you could either say, okay, well, that's why we have the log. Or you could say, that's why we should have a test, mm-hmm. right? So the test should be catching that that is in fact failing. Or we should be throwing an exception. 
in which case that will also be logged by default, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm trying to just get away from like saying like we should really, unless we're in a particular circumstance where it's very important, such as a suspension, and also kind of like what you've done is you've really relegated that to a specific channel and said, we actually have a specific channel to keep track of those things over here. So we know if we're looking for suspension information, it's in one spot. Right, it's not mixed in with all the other logs of all that information. Yeah. It's just in this one spot, right? Um, so I think that's kind of what I've decided. Like, unless it's really, really important, never log a successful yeah. something, yeah. right? I mean, if you're doing it in your local environment and stuff, and you're wanting to test things, great. But otherwise, what ends up happening is, um, like, number one, it is a disk write operation, yeah. which is not going to be massively impactful yeah. unless you're dealing with lots and lots of stuff, but it could be. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a consideration, but more so it's that it makes it very difficult to find information that I want to find actually erroneous logs. If I'm logging all this other information that is success, yeah. right? Yeah. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Like the log files just get freaking they massive. They get really big, really And this quickly. actually happened. Huge, huge. And so this actually happened because um, like the next day I was going to go to find some information and there had been some code written while I was gone for a week on vacation that got pushed in. And what do you know, there was these log statements that were literally running. I mean, we're probably talking, I don't know, 800 to 2000 a day. And they're a pretty decent sized payload. And it was just like the entire log file was garbage. Yeah. Like it was all it was, it was just full of these successful transactions that was like, I don't yeah. understand why this is at all valuable. Yeah. Like it's so hard to read anything off mm -hmm. of it. Like in the case you needed it, sure, go log it for a little bit. But like yeah. to fill your logs full of these successful transactions just does not seem optimal to me in yeah. any way, shape, or form. So I have some thoughts. So yeah, I think let's hear them. If it's a new piece of functionality that you're putting in and you want to track for a period of time that it's going through, maybe it's valuable. If if it's like just step logging, that seems like the kind of thing you would take out before you go to production though. Like if you just, you know, and if I was, I agree. if I was debugging and I was debugging an issue in production, maybe I would, you know, step through, got here, got here, got here, got here kind of thing. Right. Sure. I think if you're anticipating wanting to be able to do that, I would make that a debug level log so that you could just go and change your log level in your ENV recache your config, reload FPM, <clears throat> and then go and hit that endpoint. Um, it, I mean, it depends on if you need to, like like I said, the stuff that we do, it could be three, four, five, eight days later that we need to go and look it up. So, you know, it's in there. And it's better to have the log if you perceive that you're going to need to access it than not. And that's why we've got it. Sure. That's why we've got it in a separate channel because it's easier to find and it doesn't clutter Absolutely. up the main thing, right? <clears throat> I agree. Yeah. Um. At the same time, as you said, what value does it provide? Like that's that's like having a user save array, like first name, last name, and having a comment above that that says save the user. Right? It, it's it's yeah. the it's yeah. the descriptive comments of like my code does this. Oh, well, I can see that from your code. You save the user, create the user, and and then a comment you know that says save the user. You you don't need that that kind of craft. Right. Um, right. So I think it you know. From what you've described, that it's like logging step by step what's happening. It's it's more like that that useless kind of thing, just without without yeah. understanding the context of why you would be logging that. Um, 
if if there's no perception that you're ever going to need to use that, then I would probably look to remove it. You know, if you want to put it in there when you deploy a new piece of code to make sure you get step by step, that's okay, but I wouldn't leave it there long term. And ultimately, as you said, yeah. if you need to verify that each of those things are done, then that's what you're tested for. Yeah. And so uh, his pushback was, well, what would you think of me changing them from info to debug? And I was like, mm, yeah, okay. Like I can see that, but like, what's my preference at the end of the day? Yeah. Like, do I want them in there? And the answer yeah. was, mm, no, I don't actually. I don't think they're providing value. And they actually do add, like, let's use that term visual depth, yeah. right? Like, it does make it more difficult to scan the code and figure out what's going on mm-hmm. because you've got all this, all these log statements in there. And so I just said at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, let's just take them out. And in the future, like if we have anything that we're logging, that's just informational, let's just not do that yeah. unless we have yeah. like, let's make sure that we're handing, we're handling exceptions and errors really well. Mm-hmm. And let's really spend our time on that. Yeah. Like if we have an error that's going to be happening, like let's throw an error, throw an exception and make sure we're catching it and then log it. And it'll also be in our error tracking mm-hmm. service, yeah. which we're checking and we can create an issue from it and solve it instead of it's getting buried in the log. And the only way we're going to find out about it Here's the deal. We're not going to go look at the logs unless an error comes in. Yeah. Right? So unless an error, an exception gets thrown anyway, we're not going to look at the logs. Yeah, exactly. So we should probably just log the exception. I mean, you know, we're not going to go digging around and futzing around in these log statements to try and find something. It's it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Here's the other solution. Here's the other case, case in which I can think it would be actually useful. We do have some where we say, okay, run through this list of category types. We're looking for a specific type of category, right? And we say, these are all the categories that we know about. So if an attachment comes in with underscore ACK, we know that's an acknowledgement. If it comes in with EM, that's an email. If it comes with an AP, that's assignment pack. If it comes in with whatever, you know, uh, PR, it's police report. So there we have all these different category types, but there may come in a new one, which we do not know about and which we will end up categorizing as unknown. But it would be really nice in six months to be able to go back to this particular file and say, show me any categories that we found that went in here, but we didn't actually know what they were. And then look at their frequency and look how many we had, mm-hmm. right? And then you could say, oh, we actually have this category that's coming through quite often that we could categorize as this particular thing. We didn't know about that, right? That I can see as being useful. It is informational, but you have a spot to put it and then you can just use that later, right? Yeah. When you come back to it, it's kind of a nice to have sort yeah. of deal. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, that's helpful. And, I think and that's the, a thing, good discussion. the thing with the, the debug log level is it only provides you real-time feedback. So if you needed to track something that happened a week ago, it's no good to you. So your part of ease of access to your logs comes down to, uh, sorry, part of not reading the logs unless you have an error comes down to ease of access of those logs, right? Like it's, sure. it's, it's annoying to go and look at a log file on a server. So um, whereas, you know, with something like paper trail or, you know, our elk stack, we can go in and we can easily search stuff and providing the context and, and things like that makes it much easier to track things. So, but yeah, the, if you're going to use debug, it has to be something that is going to provide you value immediately that like things are happening. If it, if it needs historical context, then those logs should be there always. And if it's neither of those things, I don't, I don't know that it really provides any value. Yeah. And so I think what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say here is like, I have not heard. Okay. So what, what I'm saying is like, 
we are super busy. I know you are too. Like mm-hmm. we are crazy busy. Like nobody has the time to be going and looking at log statements passively. Yeah. The only time we are going to go in and look at log statements is if a problem has been reported mm-hmm. or if there is an issue that's going on that we're trying to discover what's happening, right? Um, in both of those instances, it's most, it's okay. Instance number one, there's an error that's happening. That is almost always going to be an exception Mm -hmm. uh, or something reported. In which case, I know way more information from that exception. I know the line number Mm -hmm. where it happened. I know the payload, the request. I know the user that was logged in. I know the IP address. I know the server it was on. I know what browser they were using. All of that stuff is captured with the exception. Not so with a log statement. And if I wanted to capture all that with the log statement, good luck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Okay, not happening. So using good exception handling and making sure that you're catching errors when you can. If it is something that is unknown that is occurring, it's very likely that your log statement also doesn't know about it. You didn't know about it at the time you were writing the code. It's an unknown error. You're not sure what's happening. So you likely didn't have the foresight to log that information in advance. So what I'm trying to say is I don't, I can't think of an area unless you know, you know, for example, in your situation, like we are going to utilize this in a context that we've already know about uh, and we're going to put it in the separate log file so it's easy to find. Yes, mm. do that. Like, that's great. But if you're just logging it for the sake of logging it with the hope that someday it's going to contribute to finding, you know, some error that's occurring, yeah. it, I just don't buy it. Yeah. I don't feel like that's going to happen. Um, and I've actually never had that be the case, yeah. I don't think. Maybe, but except for in critical situations, which... Like I said, there are different areas where it makes yeah. sense. But if it's something low level, it just doesn't yeah. need it there. Yeah, spend the time on the test. Anyway. Make sure that the code is robust. Don't just follow the happy path and uh, and you should be in good stead. The The last thing that I want to say, and we should probably start wrapping it up, but, Wrap but just talking yep. about um, exception handling. One case that bit us recently at the start of our billing month was we had some connectivity issues between a couple of servers and so we got the exception that's like, could not reach this server. And we're like, yeah, we know about that, ignore. But we didn't do, you know, in Sentry, you can do ignore until you get X repeats or after yeah, X sure. minutes or X users. We just said ignore because like, we know about that, don't worry about it. Um, then we got a notification from Sentry that's like, you're at 80%. And we're like, this was, you know, a week or two later or a few days later, that's whatever hilarious. it was. Yeah. But you're at 80%. I'm like, what? And then by the time, because we got the, the email in the middle of the night, and then by the time we looked at it, it was like, you have used 1.2 million events <laughs> or 1.5 million events and 1.2 million events have been suppressed. And, you know, our quota is 100,000 events a month or something like that. So yeah. <laughs> we looked and it was the same event that we'd ignored. And it turned out that like, it wasn't just a transient issue that like these two servers couldn't talk to together, to talk to each other anymore. And... um as a result, it was a polling script that goes and polls a bunch of our customer equipment to see like, what's the signal level? Is it up? All that kind of stuff. And so this was happening for, for thousands of devices every five minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it was. So you can imagine that every time it had an exception, oh, yeah. it filled up very quickly. So we've been flying blind for a little bit because uh, it was quite expensive to get us out of that mess <laughs> in terms oh, of gosh. like the over Because we've got overages set up in Sentry that like... Right, we, like spike protection. Yeah, spike protection. We've got that in there. And we and I think we've got like 
20 or 50 US dollars, which gives us another 100,000 events or something, like just to cover us in case something happens. Sure. Uh, but this this particular instance, we didn't get to it fast enough. And uh, yeah, it's it was interesting. So be careful when you use that ignore issue button in Sentry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, lesson learned the hard way, right? Yeah. School hard knocks. I, I threatened to just turn off exception handling on that, on that particular project because it's always that one. Some... And and because Laravel takes notices or or warning like a, a time like a temporary, like it is a warning that it timed out. We didn't get a response, which wasn't an error yeah. as such. But Laravel takes the warning or the notice and and converts it to an exception. And throws it into an exception. So yeah. then it became a bigger problem than it was. I said, I'm just going to turn off there because, yeah, you know, if if the device doesn't respond, that's not an application error. That's you know that device is down, whatever, and it and it comes back. As a as a four four oh four or a or a timeout, you know, request timeout in curl. So that then comes up as an exception and we're like, well, we don't really care that that it timed out to an individual device because it's not an application error. But, uh, sure, but because sure. it wasn't being caught, you know, it just became this ongoing thing. So maybe the application should catch that exception so that it's like but I I don't know. I think one of the other developers that was working on it said they had um some trouble getting the note like the timeout exceptions to be caught properly. So even when they thought they were catching it, it was still getting rethrown to Sentry. So probably bears further investigation. But yeah, just just wanted to finish on a warning. If you're using that ignore yes. exception in uh, Sentry, use like be diligent and just say like ignore until I see another ten of these or whatever. Absolutely. And that way, at least if you get that warning after 10, 30 seconds later, you know you should probably jump on it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hey, you got 10 more notices in the next 10 seconds. Okay. Yep. yep. That's, uh, we'll take a look at yeah, that right Yeah, we'll now. definitely look at that now. Awesome. Well, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. This is episode 68. Uh, if you'd like to find show notes for this episode, you can find them at northmeetsouth.audio slash 68. Hit us up on Twitter at Jacob Bennett at Michael Dorinda. And of course, rate up our show and your podcatcher of choice and subscribe. We'd really appreciate that. Share it with your friends. Share it with everybody you know. Tell them there's this crazy Aussie man in this dashing american that you need to listen to that'd be great <laughs> brilliant <laughs> okay we also wanted to again thank our sponsors fathom analytics and we had a couple other people who re-upped this year right i think our um our kind of last year we had done like a sort of semi-patreon sort of deal where mm. we just kind of reached out and said hey anybody who wants to help us keep the lights on we re- really appreciate any like sponsorships and yeah. i think we had a, so like that year has expired yeah but we had a couple of people who threw some money back in the pot this year who are those we did. let's see if i can find out very quickly for us while i'm doing that we just maybe this year we'll just do like a patreon shtick i think we floated the idea before but we haven't really we did, yeah. done anything with it so maybe we'll get that set up we'll do the whole shout out episode thing i think it's funny listening to Justin Jackson's Build Your SaaS podcast because they have like 50 Patreons now that they read out at the end of every single show. Uh, shout out Dave Junta. But you don't get that because you don't listen to their show, which is very disrespectful in my opinion. <laughs> Me? Yeah, you. <laughs> Dude, I have like such limited time. I, I you know, on the road from, from my house mm. to, to work is like five minutes. Yeah. So like I have to be super selective. I've been listening to some full stack recently. Been yeah. catching up. It's been good. Full stack's been good. Yeah. His um the episode the one before Caleb. Caleb was, was really good. I think Caleb is the only person that has ever pushed back on Adam in an interview, which I thought was amusing. Um but the episode that he did with uh, uh, was it Ryan Singer from Basecamp? Yep, was that was really good. Really Shape good. Up, yeah. yeah, the Shape Up episode where he, like they just 
threw the book out, pretended the book didn't exist and actually like started diving into things that you make. Because otherwise you listen to the same people on different podcasts all telling the same stories. So I think um, kudos to... Like he, he's such a great interviewer. and uh, He really is, yeah. I, he could have been a journalist yeah. in another life. He could have been so many things in another life. He's he's really good at what he does. So um, shout out to him as well. He could have been a Rocket League streamer. Yeah. He could have been yeah. a journalist. He could have been a power lifter. He could have been an American. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, shout out to... Uh, just shout out to Caleb Pozio for all the all the wacky and exciting stuff that he's doing. Just the, his his low tolerance to pain in terms of programming and the amount, like the exorbitant amount of time that he spends to to fix those things. You know, he did Livewire has been a twelve month project. Then he's got Alpine JS, which which looks really good if you want to sprinkle in some things without bringing into the weight the weight of of view um, or or React. Like that's that's really cool stuff. He's got this sushi thing now, which is um you know using array style eloquent models where you can just like use in memory sqlite um which is a really cool idea so um hit him up if you're not following him at caleb at caleb pozio at caleb i think he's hello <laughs> caleb at caleb pozio on caleb, caleb on twitter um he's i'm pretty sure he's at caleb pozio on github sponsor him on there help him live his best life doing the amazing open source work that he's doing um, and thank you also to uh, CTO Sumo. Looks like they re-upped for 2020. So we thank you. Um, we'll try in the next two weeks to set up a Patreon. If if you would be willing to pay like $5 an episode for us to say your name or attempt to say your name in the case of half of the hosts of the show, um, then let us know. If you think that's a terrible idea, let us know. Um, maybe we'll get some stickers made up and introduce I was a sticker say, We tier. have a new logo. Yeah, we have a new logo. We'd love to send, we could send stickers some stickers out. Maybe yeah. like, yeah, I'd love to send like mugs. Like, dude, that'd be awesome. Like coffee mugs. But I, because like, um, we had that was mocked up, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Canico did the, the mock ups of some different merch that we could do. Yeah. Can find one of those, did a great job. those things. So, yeah. yeah. That'd thanks. Be fun. Thanks, everyone. And thanks as, yeah, thanks, Fathom Analytics. Thanks, uh, Jack and Paul, we will be without sponsors next episode unless someone else hits us up or Jake hits someone up. Um, yeah. And and definitely check out um, Jack Ellis. We will link in the show notes his upcoming Laravel Vapor course. Um, I think they've they've found some really cool things. They've they've got some good understanding of you know the cost. People have said what what are the what are the true costs of running Laravel Vapor applications compared to other things. So. I think with Fathom Analytics, they're they're well positioned to to document that, and it's exciting that they've turned their paid product into, I, I guess, another paid product. But um, learning materials for those of us who are considering using um, Laravel Vapor for projects in the wild. So we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. I say that a lot and sometimes forget, so I'll try and make sure all of the things make it to the show notes. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.